Leslie Carr and Alyssa Whitwell of Clover Health join us today to discuss techniques for continuing to learn once you're no longer a junior engineer. In this episode, we cover how their career paths led to software engineering and a lot of helpful tips for developing yourself as a software engineer. Enjoy. Welcome all, Max of the Accidental Engineer. Uh, today we are located in downtown San Francisco, joined today by Leslie Carr and Alyssa Whitwell. Um, Leslie, Melissa, do you guys mind introducing yourselves? Uh, hi, I'm Leslie Carr, and I'm the engineering manager for the infrastructure team at Clover Health. And Melissa? Uh, hi, my name is Alyssa Whitwell, and I am a software engineer on our data platform team at Clover Health. So in a moment, I'll have Leslie describe a little bit about what Clover Health is and does, uh, but today we're going to be talking a bit about the topic of what to do once you're no longer a junior engineer. <laughs> like, how do you how do you level up? Uh, what can you get involved in? And, and kind of what skills-wise to, to go out and learn? So uh, before that, we should we should probably get a, a rundown of both Alyssa and Leslie work at here at Clover Health. What does Clover Health do, Leslie? Uh, so Clover Health is a Medicare Advantage company. Uh, we're basically a health insurance company uh, for people who are mostly over 65 or with disabilities in the United States. Um, and instead of a person paying the premium or your employers, many of you are used to with your normal private health insurance, the government pays the premiums to Clover Health. Maybe we should dial back for a sec and give you guys an opportunity to uh, share for our audience how you guys ended up uh, arriving at your guys' current roles here at Clover. Melissa, um, well, so what were you doing before coming to Clover? Yeah, so I, I've actually made a long journey in my, my general career, but also within Clover too. So um, I went to UCLA, I was a mathematics economics major. Um, I thought I wanted to go into consulting and then go to business school. and. Um, I did management consulting for a pharmaceutical and biotech company straight out of college and then realized immediately that I did not want to go to business school. <laughs> I actually wanted to be more technical. So I've been on this journey to be a more technical person um, throughout my career and that led me to um, being a, basically a data analyst at Blue Shield of California for three and a half years. So I, I pulled medical claims data and did financial modeling and did pricing and all of these things during um, when like PPACA, the Affordable Care Act, was, was a big deal and getting implemented. And um, I had this really great opportunity to join Clover when it was really small. And I joined as an analyst on the data science team. And since then, uh, I actually switched into software engineering here at Clover. So I've been a software engineer for about a year and a half. So you've come through this path to software engineering from a non-computer science undergrad doing yeah. Still in healthcare though, but not as a as a software engineer. Is a I should also make reference that Alyssa <laughs> has been on the show before. You guys should all check that episode out. Uh, Leslie, do you mind sharing for our audience about how you ended up at Clover and what were you what you were doing before that? And 
Yeah, well, so originally in high school, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and that was to be a chemical engineer. Didn't know what they did, but I was good <laughs> at chemistry, I was good at math, and all my teachers told me that. So then I went to Carnegie Mellon in my first semester. I took the Introduction to Chemical Engineering class, and I hated it. It was horrible. So yeah, I switched majors around a few times, but wound up dropping out. Um, I started building computers for beer. Uh, and As in people paying you in beer to make their paying them? Me in beer. <laughs> yeah, they, I tell them to buy all the parts, what parts to buy, and then charge a six pack of beer and build it for them. So yeah, um, that was sort of fun. Uh, and then I also got into Unix um, back in you know the very late 90s and early 2000s. Pe most people didn't have laptops and personal computers were still pretty expensive. So universities had computer labs that you could go and use the shared computers. Uh, the Windows and Macintosh computer labs were always full, especially you know around finals times and uh, yeah. So uh, there was there were two computer labs that were always empty: the Linux and the Unix computer labs. <laughs> go figure. So yeah. So I decided well, and also the Linux labs had bigger monitors than the rest of the labs. So I decided obvious choice. Yeah, I better learn how to use this thing so I can get into the lab whenever I want. There's definitely some miscreant in the IT department at Carnegie Mellon who uh, <laughs> definitely advocated for those larger monitors in the, in the Unix workshop. <laughs> I'm sure of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you to whoever that was. <laughs> so instead of chemical engineering, did you end up majoring in computer science? Or? I never did. Um, I had a lot of majors. I wound up dropping out um, and doing tech support and some building web pages. And just throughout tech support, uh, eventually I got a job at Google in the data centers repairing their computers. And I feel like that's really where my career took off. That was in 2004. Um, and at that time, the data centers were, a lot of the data center staff was sort of like a feeder to a lot of the rest of the organization. Uh, people who didn't have a lot of experience, but we were all very interested in learning and it gave us the opportunity to interact with the people in so many other departments. Mm -hmm. So one of those departments was the network engineering department and the and I just found that incredibly fascinating. So my manager talked to the director and uh, I worked on a few projects with the network engineering department, and then they decided, sure, you can move over and become a network engineer. This is a freaking ideal story to hear about, <laughs> for, or to share with our audience, because a constant theme across probably all of the interviews we've done so far is that uh, people tend to find their way into software engineering from non-software engineering backgrounds, and it's often from job titles that are not software engineer. Mm -hmm. um, and one of, the, one of the audiences we're hoping to reach here are people that might be thinking about doing uh, software boot camps or feeder programs that are billed as you pay tuition, we'll get you a software engineering job. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I like to advocate for our audience is maybe you don't need a software engineering job. Maybe you need a data center job <laughs> or exactly. a, a healthcare actuarial type of job. And, um, it's heartening to hear about how you made the path from being in a data warehouse doing pretty 
gnarly hands-on stuff <laughs> with hardware mm -hmm. to doing the types of stuff you do now. Um, so back to the topic that we were originally talking about of what to do when you're no longer a junior software engineer. Um, what what do you guys do on a on a on a regular basis to kind of keep abreast of what you should know in your roles, um, either in engineering management or in data data management of your guys' data platform? What do you guys What do you guys do on a regular basis to keep up? Um, I guess for me, uh, one thing that I've talked to a lot of people about is kind of like you you learn all the fundamentals and then like you're there. So what do you do next? And some of it is like I've heard feedback subscribing to newsletters. Like one of my peer mentees I have in a group suggested like make your own make a different Gmail account and sign up for all the newsletters like Postgres, um, all these like Python ones. Like if you if you ask in a Slack channel like at work, they'll give you all these responses and then have this one dedicated email inbox to all these newsletters. So. Um, you don't have to read them as they come in, but when you're like interested in learning stuff, you can go back to that account and like sift through. So that's one thing. Um, I think collaborating with other people, like I've I've had a bad track record of doing personal side projects, and that's been difficult for me. But when I pair with other people, um, that's super helpful. So um, I pair regularly with one of the senior engineers on my team, and we've been going through the Django tutorial. Mm -hmm. um, so we actually finished the whole thing recently, and I'm going to work on um, like a Django app idea I had with him also and like, I struggle to do that on my own but if I have someone else who's like going to meet with me on Wednesday I know I need to get my stuff done and we're going to get stuff done during that session too and that helps me a lot. What about you Leslie? Uh, yeah so I've tried very hard to accumulate a network of people um, and sometimes people don't know how to get a network and really all it is is just saying you could be at a conference and say, I found your talk really interesting. Uh, here's my email. Could I email you with a follow-up question? Uh, things like that. And that's a good way to just build up relationships. I mean, I feel like the word networking can be scary in the people networking sense, but it's really just about, you know, friendships which are more centered around uh, your shared business interests. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely will try to ask those people, like, what what are you doing now? What are you using? Maybe I have a specific problem. Uh, how does your company solve this? Um, I'm on an engineering management Slack as well. And I also subscribe to some <laughs> newsletters. Uh, when I'm really busy, I just, uh, you know, archive and don't pay attention. But if I have a bit of time, I can read through. And yeah, and, I'll, and cause, Conferences can definitely vary. Some conferences I find to be very useful and very helpful, um, and others not as much. But one of the most important things about conferences for me is not not always the talks, but then talking to people afterwards, finding out what what do you use at your company for for this problem that that every company has, uh, and that can give you a good place to start researching and googling. So we'll definitely include some show note links to talks that Leslie's given if they're on, available online. I think that would be really cool to see. Uh, I should mention to our listeners that one of the experiences I have at tech conferences like PyCon that I've been to a couple times before is that I end up going to talks, and it's not that the talk content is super rich. It's that by being 
at the talk, I find myself getting super hyped. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like listening to this, I'm like, oh man, this library sounds amazing. So I, instead of actually listening to the talks, I end up reading the docs. And then, like you say, after afterwards, after taking my head out of the laptop, <laughs> or just staring at the docs instead of listening, I'll, so you, people are very approachable at conferences. Um, you can totally walk up to the person who was just talking and continue a conversation as if uh, <laughs> it was a one-on-one -on -one conversation. I mean, there's constraints, but uh, definitely a lot of pros to the the conference attendance as as a way of keeping up with things. Um, any, anything that we haven't covered that you guys can think of that that's uh, super <laughs> that's like a super tool for people who, yeah. Well, when I'm trying to learn a new technology, there seems to be almost like an unofficial series, like do X the hard way yeah. that makes you type everything out. But I tend to learn better that way. Um, yeah. Just forcing to type everything out triggers something in my memory and learning style. For sure, for sure. I mean, similarly, in my experience, that's... When I hear these talks that are at conferences that amount to check out this library X that I did, I was able to do Y. It's like, all right, I'll, go, I'll read the docs about how to do Y. You know? uh, and that involves transcribing or copy-pasting code from examples in the docs or whatever. Um, one, one topic that I'm curious to run by you guys that is not in the realm of how to keep up with things uh, career-wise, but is related to uh, maybe working efficiently with code or being a productive engineer is uh, working with third-party code bases. Uh, <laughs> this is like a, a understated challenge of people with software engineering careers. How do you, how do you guys um, how do you guys navigate and, and evaluate whether to learn a certain framework or whether to use a certain library and incorporate it in code you might be writing for work or outside of work? What, what are some heuristics that you could share with people who are junior engineers who are maybe deciding between learning, you know, Django or Rails or something like that? Yeah, I, I received really good um, advice from uh, another engineer at Clover, and I, I asked him this exact question, and, that I, and I found it really useful, um, which was, like, try to figure out what the thing does first and, like, what category of thing does that fall into? So, like... What is Django? It's a web framework. Like, do you know any other web frameworks? Like, is this one fundamentally different from other web frameworks in certain ways? Are there reasons why you would need to learn this? And that can kind of help you cut through the hype of like whatever is the cool thing to learn right now. If it's if it's similar to another thing that you have learned before, what is the value add to you learning it? Um, and I I have found that to be really useful because especially when you're new, you're really intimidated by all the words and all the packages and like, this is the new thing, everyone's learning this, I don't know it, I'm a loser, or, right? But when, when you're more like, okay, well that's interesting, but in, at the end of the day, it's just a framework, like maybe I'm, total, maybe I'm totally back end and I don't care about doing front end or like web development right now, I'm not gonna learn that right now because I'm focusing on something else. Um, and that's, that's been super useful for me. Uh, I think especially now that I'm a manager, often <laughs> my first step is thinking, what problem am I actually trying to solve? And because I often get very excited about some new technology, and I'm like, I want to use this and put this in, you know, like I, I see a conference talk about it, and I want to put this in everything I do, 
and then I just have to always step back and be like, right, what is, what am I, problem am I trying to solve? Is, what, does my company already use some tool that can solve this problem? Because even if the new tool might solve it 10% better, the fact that you will be then spending all of your time trying to make sure that everyone knows this tool uh, means that the old tool may actually be a better thing to use uh, in your case. Um, also, does this is this tool brand brand new? Then you might want to step back, right? Wait till it's been around at least a year. Because if nothing else, you want there to be a bunch of Stack Overflow questions that can tell you when, when, when you have an error, exactly what that error is. Because we all know software documentation is usually pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, this is a real problem for, I remember the Go programming language when it first came out, mm -hmm. is that not only was it a new language, but the SEO for questions people might want answered about Go were awful because you would search Go space <laughs> blah. So you get, you get nonsensical results like mm -hmm. Go space blah as your search query and Google turn up all this. So that's what I guess led to Golang. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and if you are now working with Go as a programming language on a day-to-day -day basis, you search Golang on Google mm -hmm. or Stack Overflow or whatever. But that, that actually reminded me of something that Leslie and I were talking about before this, which was like some, sometimes becoming more senior or like becoming less junior is like, I know how to Google things correctly. Like that's what you said. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Oh yeah. Well, when, I, when you first are learning something, it can be hard to know what help to search for, right? Like you have a website that's 404. If you just like look up, you know, for, you know, website 404, there could be a thousand different things that are happening. So as you get more senior, you can you can know yeah what, what to search for, like add a couple more words. Uh, you might say website 404, Django, uh, website 404, Django Postgres to get, to get down into the problem. But one thing I definitely encourage everyone to do is just be stubborn and not give up with Googling, because that's trial and error is how I learned. For sure. And just, sure. yeah, keep trying, keep clicking through links, seeing that they aren't exactly what you want, and but you might understand a word you don't want or want in the search. So, yeah. Sure, totally. I, one of the things that I, I know has come up on the podcast previously that I'd love to bring up again is that one, one other way to evaluate whether you should learn a technology at any point in your career is to go look at jobs listings and seeing maybe they won't maybe jobs listings won't include what specific open source libraries that you might be using on the job but they will talk about probably programming language and um, databases and uh, maybe even web server infrastructure uh, so once I'm I just hit recording again. one thing I think would be really cool to do is to pull up uh, clover's job listings and use it as a reference for uh, kind of give, giving people guidance about how job listings can help inform uh, what companies on the market currently value sales-wise and maybe how to prioritize what you learn. So Alyssa's pulling up the Clover engineering job listings for us. Uh, we'll have them up in a second, but uh, yeah. <laughs> this is probably an opportune moment for... Uh, 
for you guys to plug that uh, Clover Health is hiring <laughs> and for a number of roles in software engineering. So uh, we'll, we'll take a look at a few of these, but we'll, we'll, we'll also link this in the show notes so people can see what we're referencing. But there's an art to writing a, a job description. So we won't, be, we won't be hypercritical of that whatsoever, but we'll take a look at what, for example, skills-wise, you guys are looking for in software engineering applicants. Um, yeah, do you guys mind uh, reading aloud what you guys are seeing on the screen? The whole thing? Uh, <laughs> right here. Maybe, maybe the skills-specific parts. Um, All right. Um, well, it's, uh, let's say you should get in touch if you have experience with functional or imperative programming languages like Python, Ruby, Go, C, or Java. You approach building and maintaining systems with maturity and rigor. You're able to work in different technical systems and concerns, and you have both built and refactored complex, often distributed systems. So I would say this is probably atypical from a lot of jobs listings in that you you guys do mention programming languages, although you mention like five, <laughs> and they're all pretty. Oh, they're all pretty similar languages. I mean, all C kind of C hierarchy <laughs> of language, but. Uh, that's a lot of a lot of ground that's covered by a lot of different potential candidates. So you guys are casting a really wide net. <laughs> maybe yeah. this, maybe this maybe this specific role, the software engineering role, is uh, is a wider net than perhaps some of the other ones that might list more specific uh, maybe softwares that people should know before uh, applying. I also have a philosophy on job listings. Um, that people can learn a lot of different specific uh, languages um, and just learning the uh, how to program and how to build things is is more more important than the specific language you choose. Mm -hmm. um, like if someone knows Go or Ruby, they might take an extra month to get more ramped up to Python, but I'm confident they can learn it. For sure. So yeah, maybe a good takeaway for this or for our audience is to consider that jobs listings are not uh, super discriminatory about whether you know Ruby versus Python, but whether you know Ruby or Python, and that uh, having the, the problem-solving experience is more important. And let's say you know Ruby and you don't know Python, and you see a job description that says you should know Python, just apply anyways. And just be <laughs> honest about it. Say, I know Ruby, I don't know Python yet. And job descriptions are often more of a wish list of someone's, you know, perfect candidate. Um, but we're all human. We're all imperfect. So go ahead and be proud that you're imperfect. For sure. I know. I know this is anecdata and not data, but it would be interesting to hear from your guys' personal experience and stories how you guys got your your jobs before Clover or even at Clover. Uh, Alyssa, how did you get into healthcare, insurance, and consulting and anal analysis? I mean, I, I fell into it, and I was actually procrastinating and not studying for a linear algebra midterm when the math counselor at UCLA sent an internship uh, opening for a Hewitt Associates, which was kind of like human resources-ish consulting, and um, it was right before the recession, and it was like an extra spot. They, they decided to open another rack for an intern and I applied for it and I um, I didn't have to do anything technical in the interview. I, I got it. 
Um, and then I got the internship the year after that because it was the recession and I went back to the same company. Um, but then when I did management consulting, there was like a case study framework and I pulled example case studies and studied for those. Um, and then even getting a technical position at Blue Shield, I, I didn't actually have to do any rigorous case studies. So I had actually like gone partway through my career without doing like formal technical interviews. And then Clover was the first time that I, I did a technical on screen and it, for the data science team, it was like basic probability and stats. And I brushed up a little bit. I don't think I did the best on the interview, but one of the things that we look for is like persistence. And if you're not getting the right answer, you don't get frustrated or you don't like lash out to the interviewer and you don't shut down. You just kind of keep talking through what you're going through. And like, I think you must, you mentioned being stubborn and persistent before, but like that gets you a long way, even if you don't know, like, I don't know the right formula to use or something. Yeah. And admitting that you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So Leslie, after dropping out of Carnegie Mellon and entering tech support and then getting into the data warehousing or data warehouse, data centers, data center side of things for Google. How did you, how did those, those jobs come to you or how did you find those? Um, a good part was uh, asking around. You ask old coworkers if, who've gone to another company. LinkedIn is so great for following old coworkers that you can see where they've gone and just say, "How do you like this place? Are they hiring?" Sometimes places are hiring and they don't even have the job listings online. Um, other times, uh, if someone refers you, you can be certain that a human is going to look at your resume instead of possibly some sort of computer screening that happens, especially at the larger companies like Google and Facebook. Um, so really, it's mostly been just from friends keeping in touch with old coworkers, just ask people you really enjoyed working with out for coffee, and you never know, they might have a U-shaped need on one of their teams in the future. Mm -hmm. um, I know in on the topic of like uh, being in mid career or no longer junior and wanting to level up, one of the things that uh, you guys have mentioned previous is about finding mentors. And so for people who might not have an existing LinkedIn network, like they might be in college still, so they don't have uh, <laughs> any ex coworkers. Uh, one one thing I was curious about is how to keep on top of networking uh, using LinkedIn is an interesting option because if you're connected to somebody, you get their email address, <laughs> which is a very attractive way of getting a hold of people. Uh, even if they don't respond to you the first time, maybe they'll respond the second time <laughs> or third time. I mean, it's all about figuring out how to how to reach out to mentors. So how, how do you guys reach out to mentors? Leslie was mentioning an engineering manager's Slack, where I guess there's a community of people who are in engineering management roles who... Yes provide each other co-mentoring, but... Yeah, there's um, there's different channels. There's an advice channel, which mm -hmm. I find very useful. Okay. Um, yeah, but I think one important thing is just take any opportunity when you can find it. A lot of colleges have some sort of group um, and go, go to their meetings. Uh, they may invite a speaker who might do something you're interested in. Um, as well at meetup.com has there's lots of meetups on lots of different subjects and not only attend the meetup make sure you're blocking off your entire night so that you can stay there and continue talking to people um, 
a lot of conferences have either discounted tickets for students or they also have scholarships for people in underrepresented groups in tech. So if you're from an underrepresented group, take advantage of that. Apply for the scholarships and some even have travel grants as well. So they'll even fly you out there. And then when you're there, just talk to as many people as possible. Uh, I, I mean, a lot of us, we like talking about ourselves. So yeah. <laughs> we wanna, yeah. Like, I'm often happy if someone, you know, wants to go get lunch with me and ask me about my career or things that I've done. I'm usually very happy to talk about that. Sometimes I'm too busy and work gets super busy, but I don't mind if people ask. Sure. Alyssa, how do, you, how do you go about finding mentors? Yeah, um, I think it's great if there's resources through um, the VCs that fund your company if you're at a company. So Clover is, is backed by First Round, and First Round puts on really great events. Um, for instance, they did dry runs of the Grace Hopper talks, and so a lot of women from Clover actually went to those events, and it was really cool. Um, we also have like a there's ask if there's like mentorship opportunities put on by the VCs. So first round does a mentorship program. I applied, I got a mentor, and they also were trying a new thing where um, they were doing like a peer mentee group. So I got to know these really awesome software engineers um, who were in different companies in the portfolio, and suddenly that extended my network tremendously um, because I switched into software engineering at Clover. I realized pretty quickly that the only other female software engineers I knew were really women at Clover, which is great because we have we have a lot of really awesome like um, women in leadership, like Leslie, um, our data platform director, um, and they're great resources, but you only know so much if you're all in the same company. Um, but also to your point about if you're in college and you don't have those connections yet, um, there are really great programs through the career centers. So I, I'm a volunteer for UCLA, and this year they did this thing called a job ready bucket list. Um, and they had alumni volunteer and review resumes. And they also had us, like, um, they had profiles of us and students who are about to graduate could reach out to us. So I, I talked to a couple students on the phone. Um, some of the students I, whose resumes I reviewed connect with me on LinkedIn and like that is great. I was also part of a sorority for women in technology, basically, um, Phi Sigma Rho. Um, and we have a really active community message board on Facebook. So women from all chapters, alumni, current students will post there. And I've answered a ton of questions for people. Um, there was one uh, girl who came from our UF chapter who was in town for one of our conferences. and. She and I met up, and I was able to talk to her, show her around Clover. So the resources are there if you are willing to ask. And, and usually people connected to you or like nearby are, like Leslie said, really willing to help out. Totally. I think on the topic of investors and your current employer, mm -hmm. having a network that you can find mentors through is a really interesting one because that's a great example of people being out there that you might not have thought of that want you to succeed <laughs> and they might not be your direct co-workers but they definitely want you to succeed yeah. and when Leslie was mentioning your network of ex-co-workers being people who can help you out they too are great people to to network with because they want you to succeed as well generally <laughs> well and then you know if you really succeed then 
they may also ask you for help sometime. Yeah. So it's it's really beneficial and great. I do want to say something else about like the mentorship programs. Like if you're if you don't have something formally through the your company, if enough people want it, you can and you're loud enough, you can get it. So like recently a couple of us were interested in this West mentorship program. Um, and we weren't funding it or anything, but there was enough requests from Clover that uh, our diversity and inclusion manager actually got us funding to get that. So that wasn't going to be a thing, but enough people requested it that West actually told our management that a bunch of women from Clover wanted to do it, and so they let us do it. One of the predicaments of no longer being a junior engineer is that there's ambiguity about what you may or may not know. and, and uh, so given the ambiguity of not knowing what you don't know as a no longer junior software engineer, how do you navigate that? <laughs> yeah, so I think um, just to highlight the kind of transition, like when you're a blank slate and, and you know you don't know anything and everyone else knows you don't know anything too, it's really easy to help people. Um, like I, I was actually overwhelmed by the number of engineers who wanted to help me when I first switched to engineering because I like I could learn anything right like and everyone knew that whatever they told me like would be helpful in some way um, and then I think you hit a plateau where like you stop learning so quickly because you're covering like this area that's like, pretty easy to pick up on and is not super deep and then you're like oh I can navigate the landscape but now maybe I actually don't know anything at all because you know that you're like at the bottom uh, of like the learning curve um, once you've hit a certain level. Um, but I think that you have to carefully articulate to people what parts of things you do understand and ask for the right things. And then it's uncomfortable for the person helping you because they generally don't want to treat you like you know nothing, like they want to give you credit, um, but they're, they have no idea what you know. And you might have these weird pockets where you like know a ton about like like a couple of things, but you have no idea about this fundamental thing. So it, it's about really like talking to another person and saying like, yes, I understand these parts, but what I'm really trying to get to is like the detail here, or I'm really fixated on this edge case. And then, then that can help the conversation. Yeah. It can be embarrassing to admit yeah. that you don't know something. <laughs> yeah. There's plenty of times that I don't know something, which, you know, some other people think is very basic and you just, have to push that embarrassment down and ask and yeah most most people are actually really nice and most people remember the time when they also didn't know something for sure for sure i mean that that's i think a really big roadblock for people who are first getting into software engineering is hitting their first roadblock and then not getting over the fact that they're at a roadblock <laughs> or like being able to learn the skills to reach out to peers or or people who might know more than them about how to get around this particular roadblock. Like uh, you were mentioning uh, Google search, <laughs> maybe for a keyword like website 404ing, but maybe they need to be searching website 404ing Django or website 404ing Django Postgres, whatever. So yeah, I think uh, <laughs> being being cognizant of the fact that you can, you can reach out to people besides, uh, besides reading static text on the internet somewhere, uh, valuable skill. I think, I don't know how, what you think of this, Leslie, but for me, I like my goal is to eventually be thrown a generic problem and be able to 
navigate that problem no matter what it is. It, like, from your experience, do you think that that is useful? Because like I, I'm, I try to tell myself when I get stuck, at least I got farther than I used to get. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like there's there's always going to be problems that you have to ask someone. Mm -hmm. I sort of sometimes I'll time box myself. Mm -hmm. um, I'll look something because you don't want to just spend your entire day asking people as well. Yeah. Like there, there's, a, there's a good balance. So I'll say, all right, I'm going to spend 20 minutes looking this up and trying to see if this works. And then I'll ask for help. And sometimes nobody knows the answer. So I have to just keep looking and banging on the problem. But then oh, there's a lot of times someone's like, oh, I've seen this problem and can help you. So I don't want, you don't want to always directly go to asking people. But you also don't want to spend the entire day stuck on a problem when someone else can help. Totally. I have, a, I have a short anecdote to share about a personal experience with that, where I had a coworker who was well-credentialed beyond my wildest dreams, who was forced to sit next to me at my first, I would say, software engineering job. And I would turn to him any time I encountered a roadblock. And he was so pissed at me. <laughs> I would go up to him. I would physically tap him on the shoulder. I, you know, I'd send him instant messages or whatever. It got to a point where he would straight up be physically non-responsive when I would approach him. And I, I, this was at a point in my career where I didn't know how to fend for myself when it came to overcoming roadblocks. So yeah, the point about not necessarily resorting to distracting a coworker first is well taken. I think people should uh, take that to heart and consider how uh, the feelings of others when you when you go to solicit help is <laughs> you have you have a certain amount of social capital, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And you can you can burn through it really fast. And uh, it it you can gain it back kind of slowly. One way is to bring in hot chocolate. <laughs> that's a great way. Uh, or when you go on vacation, bring back food from wherever you were on vacation. Totally, totally. Makes your team less sad that yeah. you went on vacation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Soft bribes are a real thing. <laughs> There's a flip side to it, too, which is, like, if you allow yourself, like, 10 more minutes to solve, try to solve something, you have more faith in yourself. Like, I, I started realizing... Like, I, I used to hit a roadblock, and I'd be in despair, and I'd be like, where's where's my mentor? Like, well, I need to talk to them. I'm, I am not an engineer because I can't solve this. And then it got to a point of like, oh, I hit this roadblock. Let me just try a couple more things, and then I would I would solve it, even if it was sort of small, but I, I started to build more faith in myself in solving problems, which was cool. For sure. Yeah. Any, anything else that we're, we're missing here? Or I mean, I, th I think we've covered a ton of ground. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Leslie, Alyssa, thanks for joining us. Uh, hope you. to do it again soon. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for the Accidental Engineer podcast. If you enjoyed our interview with Leslie and Alyssa and want to hear more about professional software engineering careers, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of interviews and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish new ones. Thank mm -hmm. you.